Welcome back to Misunderstood, everybody. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. We've talked about some pretty personal things on this podcast, but today we are going to expose even more when we get down and dirty and talk about sex. Everybody's doing it, but for some reason, there's so much shame in talking about it. Today's guest takes that shame and throws it right out the window. We are joined by the acclaimed Dr. Chris Donahue. He has so many titles with the word sex in it, it's hard to keep track. He's the doctor of clinical sexology and human sexuality. He's a certified sex therapist and a certified sexologist. What does all of that mean? We get into it. We had a bold conversation about intimacy and sex, those having it, who's not, who should have more. We delved deep into the world of dating apps, feminist porn, debated the legitimacy of sex addiction, threesomes, and found out what we really all want to know, what makes somebody good in bed. Dr. Donahue doesn't shy away from answering anything. In fact, he preaches sex positivity. It was a fascinating and fun conversation, and I even learned a couple things too. I think you might as well. So get ready, probably grab a glass of wine for this. Dr. Chris Donahue. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm sure everybody is most excited of a lot of my guests to hear from someone like you <laughs> with all these big credentials behind you with the word sex involved. So that's when people listen up, I think. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So can you explain to people what a sexologist is and what really a certified sex therapist is? Yeah, so it's a part of psychology, uh, um, trained in clinical psychology first, and it's a specialization. And the way I kind of break it down is sex is a part of our culture. It's a part of our psyche. It's probably one of the most important parts of our mental health. And it often gets kind of stigmatized or shamed. And a sexologist is someone who's really done the training and the work to understand the history of sex, how sex you know, plays a role in culture. And then a sex therapist is someone who's trained to work with anything sex-based. So people that are struggling with sexual dysfunctions, they want to improve their sex lives, sexual esteem, body esteem. It's a pretty big label that covers anything around sex relationships, gender. But you can, you can also be talking to people about, you know, just their relationships as well. It doesn't have to be rooted in sex. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. An important part of any sex training and to become a certified sex therapist is getting training in relational and marital therapy. Um, and at this point in, 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 in the entire world, there's only about 500 or 600 of us that are actually certified. Um, the field wow. of sex and relationships have a lot of people making up labels and terms, and there's a lot of interesting people kind of in the field. But uh, sex, a certified sex therapist, someone you know, definitely has the credentials. So I'm curious what happened in your childhood, your adolescence, your adulthood that made you want to get into this? It's such a good question because I know my parents, when I started getting into it, they were like, of all the things you could do, uh, my dad was a doctor himself okay. and uh, he was in general medicine. So I, I never really was interested in sex. My, my first degree, I went to NYU. I was doing nutrition and food science. I just thought that was an interesting field. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with it. You know, I was living in New York City, having fun, slowly started getting more interested in clinical work. And uh, the sex area was just dynamic 
mm-hmm. you know, a niche market. I fell into it and then slowly started kind of doing some media stuff and I almost got pulled into it more, right. more or less. Well, it seems like people would have so many questions about it that they want to talk to someone about. And there's so much shame that goes along with that topic or, you know, people don't know if they're doing things right. I mean, how the hell would you really know, right? The only intimacy you have yeah. is the partners you've been experienced with, you know? That's right. And, and anytime I go anywhere, including like a dinner party, inevitably, if someone finds out what I do, someone will be like, hey, can I ask you a question really quickly? Right. Like, you immediately become the most popular person at the party, I'm sure. <laughs> Happily and frustratedly so sometimes. But it really also tells me that it's something we're desperate to keep talking about. And that's really important to us because it's always creeping in somehow, right? Yeah. So I'm curious in all the credentials that you have, what are you finding that people are coming to you for most? Or is it a gamut of things? Well, right now, you know, it's always, there's always a gamut of things, but there's a couple things that will show up based on what's going on in culture. And I would say right now, the most important thing is dating apps. I, my heart hurts for anyone on them because it's creating a lot of, okay, see, so what's your experience been thus far? Would you say yay or nay? Okay. Well, I am a single mom of an 11-year-old, and I have been divorced for 10 years. So I would say the only way I've actually had successful relationships where I've met a man and dated him for like years has been through dating apps. I don't meet people at bars. I'm super busy. I find that like, you know, also I'm 48. So like, you know, at a bar, why wouldn't a guy go for the 25-year-old who's, you know, all slinked up and, you know, sexed up? And I I feel like I have a lot of baggage that goes with me. They have to deal with three dogs, a woman who's middle-aged, you know, um, a kid. There's like a lot of shit to it. And I feel like with dating apps, <clears throat> you could put a lot of stuff out there and kind of hand it to them on a platter. Be like, this is who I am. I'm okay with it. And you have to be too, to fit into this pool. And if we're at, you know, if we meet halfway and you're into this and that this is what I'm serving, then we can start the conversation. But you know, that's hard in a bar. Yeah. And it's also easy that you can sit on your couch, right. And be dating yeah. from your couch in sweatpants with like a coffee. And that's why I think dating apps are awesome. I, I recommend them. It's yeah. just, they've led to a lot of psychological trauma Ooh. because a lot of people are encountering a lot of really bad experiences and encountering a lot of really bad people. And if you said to me, you know, what's the one thing you wish everyone on dating apps would do? I would say take it more seriously because there's mm-hmm. another human being on the other end of that that you're communicating with and you're either making them feel better about sex and dating in the world or worse. And like, let's bring a little more kindness to the whole process. There's a lot well, of harsh behavior. But it's interesting you say that. So first of all, I think a problem that people have on dating apps is that they represent themselves in a way that is just not true. So they'll put a picture of themselves from 10 years ago when they were a different weight or they look different they didn't have any wrinkles, whatever it was, they had a different haircut or, you know, they have filters on, especially women put a lot of filters on. So they get to a bar or restaurant and it's not who you sold, you know? And I think that, I mean, I've, I have a lot of male friends who will tell me stories about how they basically just walked out. They're like, you are not the person that I agreed to meet. And I think it's mean, of course, but I also am somebody who doesn't misrepresent who I am. So I think that there's a lot of ways you can fall into a trap, but also Another thing with dating app that I think is difficult, it's like the grass is always greener. There's way too many options. And so <clears throat> you can have a great conversation with someone, but if you're not engaging 
quickly and moving forward quickly, like you lose that person because they're interested in someone else. Or there are people that just like to type and never leave their house. And that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Don't yeah. you think? And you nailed a core, 100%, you nailed a core theme, which is the clients I work with on dating, because that's what some people will come work with me on, is why am I not meeting anyone? What's going on in my dating life? So I will work with them on the pictures they're posting. What 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 are they putting in their bio, right? And what is that communicating yeah. about them to the, other, to the other people? Because we can't see ourselves that well. So I think it's smart to have a friend look at your bio and your pictures and say, does that accurately portray who I am and what I'm looking for? But I tell them over and over and over, dating isn't about getting someone. Dating is about being as authentic as possible, hoping they are as well so we can actually see if we're a match. So I say, Mm -hmm. what should you wear on your first date? The kinds of things you honestly like to wear. Like right. come from your best, but please don't sell a dream. And I think people do that. I'm sure you've experienced that where you're like, wait a second, the person you were on dates one through five is not actually who you are. So for me, yeah. I'm in a relationship, but when I was on the apps, I'm I'm pretty casual. So I'm not going to take a date on a very fancy dinner because I don't go to fancy dinners. That's not right. my vibe. So we'll go like, we'll go to an easier dinner and maybe like a nighttime walk on the beach. I like quieter, more relaxed things. I'm the kind of guy that like, Let's go on a hike and a picnic, right? Yeah. Wear what you like to wear. Go do the kind of activities you like to do. Because as you said, misrepresentation is nasty. But what about all these sites where people are, you know, looking for sex? I mean, they're looking for hookups as opposed to relationships. Do you yeah. think that's okay as long as they represent what they want? 100%. 100%. Be forthcoming because there are people that are looking for that. I do work with uh, women and men that are newly single. They've been in a committed relationship for decades and they're saying, I just want some casual fun. Maybe I didn't have the sex life historically I had always wanted. And now I want to uh, go through some of those relational and sexual developmental milestones, which uh-huh. are an actual real thing. People that get married really young, I think it's a bad, it's a bad move. You're not learning communication and boundaries and all these really important things. So just be forthcoming about it. Save yeah. someone a lot of time, which is kind of where that compassion piece comes back in again. Just be honest. The holidays are here, which is perfect timing for today's sponsor, OneSkin. Whether or not you're traveling or hosting this year, OneSkin is your best defense against all the holiday stresses that can cause your skin to look, well, let's just say older and tired. I've been using OneSkin for a while and I just fell in love with their products. It's literally changed my skin. I've been using it for about a month and a half now, and I'm getting compliments on how good and awake and colorful my skin looks. They're powered by the groundbreaking peptide OS1, which is the first ingredient scientifically proven to prevent accumulation of aged cells, the primary culprit behind skin aging. The real magic OS1 has actually been proven in the lab to reduce the biological age of skin by several years, meaning it not only prevents, but it slows down skin aging, leaving you with healthier, more hydrated and glowing skin. And it's just in time for gift giving season. One Skin has launched their mini bundles, which include face and eye topical supplement, body lotion, and a cleanser, which all comes in a cute travel bag. If you have a trip planned, you've got to pack One Skin's mini skincare essentials. And if you're gifting this holiday season, One Skin's mini bundles are the perfect stocking stuffers. And now for a limited time, our listeners can enjoy 15% off One Skin products using the code understood when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. This holiday season, give yourself and your loved ones a head start on New Year's resolutions to swap your skincare for skin longevity because with one skin, it's not about a temporary result. It's about getting to the root of aging skin and leaving it healthier. So I ordered this 
uh, mini bundle. And I'm telling you, I was saving it for a trip because I'm going to France for the holiday. And I actually opened it all and started using it. So I'm going to have to buy a whole nother mini bundle for my trip. Um, everything in there is amazing. The body lotion, which I had not tried before, is fantastic. I'm actually going to be buying the larger um option for that because I've almost used all of it. I use it all up. It's so good. The cleanser feels amazing. The eye supple, the eye topical supplement and the face um, cream is so good. I use it twice a day. And as I said, I'm getting compliments left and right. People want to know why my skin looks like it's glowing. So one skin, which is the world's first skin longevity company is addressing skin and health at a molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging. So your skin feels and appears younger. Let's not forget that it's time to start uh, with a new face, eye and body routine at a discounted rate today. New customers get 15% off with code understood at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code understood the new year is approaching, guys. Now is the best time to invest in your skin. Age healthy with one skin. So you mentioned you don't love dating apps. Where would you suggest is a great place to meet someone? It's a hard one. I mean, the best recommendation I always give people if they don't want to do apps while still recommending doing the apps at the same time is I'll yeah. say to them, go to the kinds of places that you enjoy being, and that will give you the best opportunity to meet the kind of people that also enjoy that. For instance, mm -hmm. I also don't like bars and nightclubs. I go see a lot of art. I go to comedy shows. I go to concerts. Continue to do that. However, while there, you have to live in the way that I call living singly. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if I'm working with you and you were to say to me, I'm not meeting anyone, I'd say to them, well, for instance, when you're at the grocery store, do you have a hat on, sunglasses, and AirPods in? That is not living in the world in a way that allows someone to maybe meet you, right? Oh, so yeah. I'd say be, be approachable. Uh, uh, approach right? Be accessible when you're at that concert or at that movie with your friend. Make eye contact with people, right? Like be open because people are always looking for signs that this is someone I can approach. People that have good boundaries, right? Because uh, we don't yeah. want creepers. But healthy people look for signs of someone who maybe wants to be spoken to. And so I tell people, talk, hold conversations, say hello to people. You have to be approachable. Yeah. Oh, that's really good uh, advice. So. Okay. My next question for you would be about what your thoughts are related to, you know, all these things. When people are looking on the news, they're seeing that men are getting in trouble and they're claiming to be sex addicts. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that exists? Do you think that's just an excuse to get them out of some trouble? Um, yeah. Why do rehabs exist for these kind of things? If it's not real, <laughs> let's get into all that. Yeah, you're bringing up a very controversial, triggering topic. When I post about this on my social media, I used to have a, a podcast and radio show. And whenever I would talk about this, it got the most response. So sex addiction in the clinical world is not a, a legitimate diagnosis. The diagnostic manual does not have a term for it. You cannot bill insurance for it. And all the major psychological organizations have rejected it as a term. So people that are using that label are making up their own definition for who they're using it for. It's right. case by case. And that's not a good thing in the field of psychology. So having said that, I think people are misusing it for sure. When I looked at Tiger Woods' situation, right, that was someone who was married and was cheating on his wife. He wasn't a sex addict. He was just a jerk that didn't have good ethics. He was a narcissist. He got a lot of attention. A lot of women threw themselves at him, and he had poor boundaries. 
and not enough care for his wife. That's not a sex addiction issue, right? That's like a personality. Just being an asshole is what you're saying. That's exactly what I said. (laughs) He's an asshole, not a sex addict. And these treatment centers, I think, I hope, they have a good intention. um, But I think they do a lot of damage because a lot of the sex addiction field really walks people into sex phobia and sexual anorexia. And they shame all sexuality. And I was was going to... God, I was I was going to ask how how they're actually treating that while you're in there. Yeah. So what they essentially want to do is they want to remove all sexuality from your life. So if yeah. you go in there saying I'm a sex addict, I'm Tiger Woods, they'll say, well, you can't even masturbate. And now so it's like, OK, well, that's interesting. Right. Like now we're just really shaming sexuality in their life at all. And their criteria for sex addiction often steps far outside of out of control sexuality. So, for instance, if you're into some really kinky stuff for a lot of those centers, that's a criteria for sex addiction. Hold on a minute. That's not true. People are very sexually diverse. We look at, we have really great research from porn search engines. Whether you like porn or not, it still tells us what billions of people every day are sexually interested in. And guess Mm -hmm. what? Nobody is Googling wife, married wife, in our bed, after showering, on Sunday, in missionary, blowing kisses. No one's Googling that. The world is kinky as hell, but we shame that as sex addiction. I have clients come to my office saying, I'm turned on by this creative, diverse thing, so clearly I'm addicted to it. No, you just have to do the work of having confidence in the fact that you have a creative sexuality. So if you had a couple coming into your office and they're talking to you about how maybe the husband or even the wife is more turned on by porn and they're not necessarily turned on by each other. Are you telling them to do some role playing like porn? (laughs) Uh, Sometimes, but it's more about looking at what is that porn? uh, What need is that porn meeting and how can we find another way? So for instance, sometimes partners don't want sex with each other because the sex is not worth wanting. So it's really an issue of improving their sex life. Other times, they don't have a healthy relationship. And it's healthy that one of them would rather go to porn than their abusive or verbally abusive partner. Other times, it's because maybe the porn is a more honest expression of what they're turned on by, and they're afraid to share with their partner, this is the kind of sex I'd really like to be having with you or in general. And so it's really about digging deeper. So what about the the notion that somebody who watches too much porn, um, they can't have regular sex? You know, again, I, I want to understand if it's that there's an intimacy issue and that mm-hmm. to, you know, approach a partner for dating or sex is beyond what they feel like they have the skills for and porn mm-hmm. is very easy and lazy. And also we live in a culture, sadly, where some people aren't seen as dateable. Right. Like there's market value where everyone wants a certain kind of person. Right. Yeah. And some people are larger bodied, uh, have disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for some porn is the only way that they have access to sexuality. And I'm glad they have that. So mm-hmm. it's really about figuring out what is the what needs the porn meeting. And is there another healthier way to get that need met? Right. Um, you were bringing up some uh, like Tiger Woods and some scandals there we were talking about and going to. um sex addiction rehabs and how, um, you know, maybe that works to clear their path going forward. Like some people look at it as a way to kind of make themselves um, repent for what they're doing. And I'm talking about the public seeing that, not yeah. necessarily yeah. them. But what what are your thoughts then on the women involved in that kind of scandal and the slut shaming that goes around uh, with that? 
the, the women that are the victim or the women yeah. themselves? Uh, yeah. The women that are involved in those kind of scam scandals with those Where's men, my heart? like, like mm-hmm. a, you know, um, what's the name of the guy who was um, Sandra Bullock's husband, I think had an issue oh, or even a Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Or, you know, and a, and a tiger. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like the women always about... get blamed is my point. And the men get to go to sex rehab, which you're saying you don't believe exists. And then their record is kind of clear, but the woman is always the mistress, the whore, you know, she's yeah. slutty. She, you know, she has this, uh, this cloud on her of being, you know, very promiscuous and not worth being a wife, so to speak. I see that in cheating as well, where mm-hmm. sometimes if a woman's being cheated on, she directs the anger at the other woman versus at her husband who created the issue. Right? right. And who should have the most responsibility to her. So that hurts my heart. Right. And I think slut shaming is a really horrible thing. Cause if you want to talk about slut shaming very quickly, when we slut shame someone, all we're saying is, uh, we're talking about ourselves, the person who's using the label. We're saying the sex you're having makes me uncomfortable. And so instead of just acknowledging that, I'm going to pathologize you as though you're the problem. But I feel bad. You know, that's a commentary on media. Media loves the target. And we're not going to go after Tiger because, like you said, he's struggling from a psychological issue. Well, let's call bullshit on that. Like, mm-hmm. I tried to. I put an article out there. I think it was the Daily Beast where I was like, bullshit. He's an asshole. He's a narcissist. This guy's not a sex addict. Like, let's not put this on the women. Let's put this on him. Grow up. But also, men, hold each other accountable. Like, don't support your friends doing that stuff. Because we see a lot of that as well, where men know that their friends are doing those things. Step in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's people are really stuck in these sex roles, right? That women get attached or they could be the cheater. They steal these men away. And then these men, either it's cool to have notches on their belt or they can do these things and get away with it and just, you know, move on. But for the woman, it really stays. So I feel like there's roles that for a very long time have remained. Yeah. And that's why I'm always really proud of the women that are trying to normalize female sexual empowerment, because I think that's a key part of reducing some of that slut shaming. Um, And so I, yeah, I think we need more of that. So something that's different about you that I realized in researching you is you believe people should have a lot of sex and have it early. Now, I've always heard that if you want to be respected, you should hold out as long as you can. Um, otherwise, the guy won't see you as wife material. What would you say to all that? I would say that sex and slut shaming. And I would say that someone who wants to have sex sooner than later, that's a demonstration it depends who we're talking about. We're talking about someone healthy. I'll give yeah. both examples. For someone healthy, having sex sooner than later is a demonstration that I'm really serious about commitment, and I want to explore all levels of intimacy. And I can learn more about someone through having sex with them than I can having coffee. Coffee, I can figure out if you like Game of Thrones and where you like to vacation. Sex, I learn about your body esteem, your self-esteem, boundaries, communication skills, and whether or not we're compatible. The problem with delaying sex is Sometimes the interest is only sex, and we don't know that until we've had sex. And if I'm interested in them afterwards, then I know that there's a deeper connection that we can build on. And I want to know that. Right. Okay. And so you brought up something that I want to ask about. What is the difference between intimacy, right? And then like one-time sex? Like I think people get there's this line that people don't know how to 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 walk on, which is like, um, do I have to be in love with someone to have sex? Do I have to have love feelings? Can you be sexual? And can that be okay? Can you do that in a relationship? Like, talk to me about, you know, these, ba- these issues of, you know, wanting to be in a relationship and have intimacy, but also, you know, having a one night stand and having that still be okay, if that's who you are. 
Yeah, the first thing I say, because I work with a lot of those individuals where they'll be wanting to be in a committed long-term relationship, that's a beautiful goal. And maybe they're in a similar situation as you where they're saying, and I'm not saying you said this, but they could be parallel where they're at a certain phase of their life and they're liking what their life has for them and they're open to relationality, but they're not necessarily desperate for it because they have a lot of beautiful things in their life that make them feel full and happy. And I'll say to them, you can seek both at the same time. There are a lot of beautiful examples of what began as sex only leading to the uncovering of the fact that we have a lot more in common. Oh, and, and, and oh, wow, like I learned more about you. And it can lead to dating, right? right? So if you want relationship, my stance is be open to everything because you never know what will lead to what. And again, I work with a lot of couples where it began as friends with benefits only or as a one-night stand and they slept over and they had a great morning and they stuck around and went for brunch. And next thing they know, it's months later and they're still hanging out and there's really something to this. Don't mm-hmm. shame sex as though it can't lead to more. Sex is never just sex. Even in even in the dark, no names exchanged hookups are an intimate process. It's still a human yeah. being that you're connecting with. And I say that because I want people to take that seriously. I want people to take hookups seriously. You are leaving someone better off, off or worse off. Take that seriously. But again, if you want relationship, be open to all of it. Right. What would you say about couples that are in um, sexless, sexless marriages, you know, I, or even just, you know, people that have been dating for years and that portion has fizzled out? Is that natural? I think people have started to believe that that is natural and they should just go with it. And, you know, they might still really love the person, but their their words to you would be, I'm not in love with them anymore. Um, how do they get, can you get out of that? Can you get yeah. back? What I, what I mean is, can you get back into a sexual relationship with them or do you need to get out of the relationship altogether? Yeah, That's a painful moment. And it can be a very scary moment, right? If you're very deep in it with someone and you've built a powerful life full of uh, home ownership and children and you have dogs, it's a very scary moment where you're confronted with what does this lack of sex mean? So mm-hmm. it's going to mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. The first thing I always say is don't panic. Because how sex is right now does not mean that's how it will always be. So don't panic. And I want everyone to know that expect phases where there's some sexlessness. Because Mm -hmm. there is a um, basic biological component to this, which is under times of a lot of stress, because maybe you are uh, dealing with issues at work or you've lost a loved one, you aren't supposed to be sexual. Your erotic system shuts down so you can attend to dealing with those stressors. If you're right. Or sometimes it's a self-esteem issue if somebody's lost, uh, gained weight, lost weight, whatever. So I always say, like, allow some of that. But we can never go back to what was. The sexuality we have in the early stages of a relationship is not an honest or true baseline for that couple. The most arousing thing sexually is newness and novelty. And we can only find that in the beginning of a relationship. And I think the issue is that later into a relationship we don't realize that our sexual desire will sometimes have to come from a different place. We cannot rely upon those early things. Again, newness, novelty, distance, space. Now that we're close and connected, because when we start dating someone, what do we want? I want you to text me every day. I want you to sleep over. I maybe want to live with you. That is all the death of eroticism. Hmm. So... In wanting all of that, you have to almost prepare for some of that magic sexually to drop. And sex desire comes from another place. So what does it come from then? It comes from this. 
I love you and I want to be close to you now. It's not just horniness anymore. It's I want to have a shared experience. I want deeper intimacy. It's still very pleasurable. I want to be close to you. It feels good and I feel safe after having done that with you. But some people can't handle or tolerate that. But often it has to come from a different place. So is... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and the really quick other caveat is... Also check in on whether or not you're having the kind of sex that's worth wanting. Are you withholding who you really are and what you really want sexually? Because that sometimes is the case. And also, don't you sometimes maybe get into a rut and you're always doing the same positions and you think that that's what you stuck with? All of a sudden, that's what it becomes for weeks, years, whatever it is. And that can be really boring. Yeah, and that's not sometimes. That's common, actually. Most people do like the one, two, three. We will kiss first, then I'll touch her boobs, then I'll go down on her penetration. We tend to have sex in a very patterned top-to-bottom process, and that is extremely boring. And so one of the interventions I give couples is start and stop with different activities. Mix it up, different times of day, different places in the house. Sex requires little tweaks. People think we have to bring in costumes and swing from the chandelier and role play and whip. Nah, you don't need to do that. Small tweaks and changes. Break the patterns. How would you suggest for someone that's going through this to get themselves or their partner in the mood then if they've been struggling? That's a tough one, right? Because there's so many factors that are involved in being in the mood. Um, We have to check in with how do we feel about our own body? right? Like, how do we feel about this, which is what I'm presenting to someone when I initiate sex? So that's when I Wait, and also, and also I'm curious, like with women, I think it's more emotional, like how I'm feeling connected to that person. Like if they didn't take out the trash, they're pissing me off. They're yes. being annoying. I don't yes. want to have sex with them, but yes. the man yes. might be like, Oh, you look so hot. If you're wearing little boy shorts out and carrying the trash. And I'm like, don't fucking touch me. So how do you get on, right? But aren't men visual yeah. and women are more emotional? It, it's, it's, it's both. I work with some men that are definitely emotional. And I work with some women that are definitely very visual. It, it's, okay. it's, very, it, it's, it's particular to the person. But you nailed a really important key concept, which is foreplay, um, initiation of sex happens long before you actually approach sex, right? So when someone's coming towards you, they are symbolizing every experience you've had with them hours, days, and weeks prior. So if you haven't taken out the trash and you've been a jerk and you've acted like a slob for days and weeks, that's what I'm feeling and seeing coming at me. So foreplay means be a good person, be a good partner, and that will make someone want to receive what's coming at them. So it's about, again, how does your partner perceive you as a person? But also, how do you feel about that which you're bringing to them? You know, the joke I always give, I use a lot of food examples, is sex is like a potluck. If you show up at the dinner and you're proud of what you brought, you're going to put it in the table, you're pointing at it, you want everyone to see it. That's how you have to feel about yourself. But if you don't feel good about who you are, you're going to kind of tuck that meal away and don't want to acknowledge it's yours. So right. it's about both. The relationship, how's that going? And also, how do you feel about yourself? So foreplay is not just sexual. It's about what you bring to the table beforehand. Um, Do you believe that monogamy is really possible and realistic? I think monogamy has a lot of really beautiful benefits that it offers. I think a lot of growth and transformation and learning can happen uh, when it's just you and this other person. Um, So for me, it's not so much is it realistic or possible. It's really about uh, what part of you want monogamy. Because when a couple enters my office, if they say, oh, we're open, we're poly, I say, why? If they come in, they say we're monogamous, I say, why? 
I want to understand what part of you wants that because for some of us, so it's a choice. It's a choice, and I want to make sure it's a healthy choice coming from a healthy part. And for some couples, I think they should be monogamous. Other couples, I think that isn't good. Monogamy is for people that have a lot of really good sexual chemistry and compatibility. And if you don't, you are not built and shouldn't be monogamous. Hmm. Monogamy is also for people that are interested in sex. It's, I believe, um, a little sexually uh, problematic and maybe even emotionally abusive if you say to someone, I want monogamy. So I can only be your sexual partner, but then I'm also not going to be open to sex. So I'm actually going to backdoor you into forced celibacy. No. If you want monogamy, you have to be open and interested in sexuality with your partner and you have to work on that. And do you feel like this is why a lot of people cheat? Do you believe cheating is kind of inevitable in a lot of circumstances or is it like a symptom of what's going on in a relationship? I think it's a symptom of what's going on, but can also be a component of an individual. As humans, we want two things at the same time. We need and we want both pair bonding and relationship, but we also need autonomy and individuality and healthy people that can pull off monogamy can manage both, right? And that would look like, uh, I live with my wife, and Friday night I go out with my boys. And I'm still in a relationship monogamous, but I'm a solo individual out in the world with my friend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone is going to be able to pull that off. And there are some people for a multitude of reasons that aren't built for monogamy. And I say to them, stop trying. Acknowledge and own that you need something open, something more poly, whatever the verbiage might be. Stop trying to do monogamy. It doesn't work for you. You're hurting people. You're hurting yourself. And that's really interesting because I think a lot of those people, we shame them, right? That they're not capable of, you know, committing, that they're a cheater, that they're a liar. And in reality, it might be they're built that way. And they, if they're just upfront about it, um, and that's the choice they're going to make, that they should stay in relationships, that that is acceptable. I think when you you start lying and hiding who you really are is where you get into trouble. And it ruins more than just the intimate relationship you probably have. A hundred percent, right? Because a healthy person that also starts to eat away at their own self-esteem because they're not living in their own integrity. And I think I'm thankful that we're in a time where there's more and more people talking about and practicing non-monogamy. I mean, I I loved, there was an article that came out about a bunch of, a couple celebrities, and they were talking about this concept of living together while apart. We're finally in a phase of life where we're acknowledging there's other ways of running a relationship and essentially what they're doing. And I think when Paltrow was one of the people who talked about it and that, again, I don't know pop culture well, but the girl from the Big Bang Theory, the blonde girl, Mm -hmm. Ellie, something or other. And it's this stance of we're together, we're monogamous, but we have separate homes. And we sleep over and we spend the night together, but like cohabitation doesn't work well for everyone. Or Mm -hmm. there's another movement of couples living in the same home, but having separate bedrooms because one Mm -hmm. of them snores other reasons. And we live together, we have a great life, but we don't need to share a bed all the time or a bedroom or a home. So we're starting to honor that people need different things. And just because you fail at or can't pull off the standard style, monogamy, living together, same bedroom, doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or your marriage is broken. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that we're still in a stage, though, where people probably don't understand that as much. And if they see that someone sleeps in separate bedrooms, they assume they're having some sexual issues. Someone's probably cheating and they've been kicked out or, you know, whatever it is. You know, it's funny you're bringing up, you know, shows or celebrities. Um, I don't know if you ever watch Sister Wives. Have you seen this? Uh, no, but I'm very familiar with the concept. Yeah. So the man who's married to four wives on the show, a lot of them have decided over the years to divorce him. They think he's a jerk. He has like 30 kids, whatever it is. So I watch the show and I'm thinking, I don't get it. How 
is he sleeping with one woman for two nights? Then he goes to the other woman for two nights. How do these women not get jealous? I know people who have had threesomes and it always backfires. You're always worried about if the man's really thinking about the other woman, if he's now doing this behind your back, if he likes sex with them more. I mean, I don't know any circumstance where it does work, but that's just in my little community of stuff. And I, I've actually <laughs> never, I will be open about the fact maybe this isn't like sexually exciting, but I've never done a threesome because I think that it is too, I don't know. I think it's, I, I rather would have the person for myself and I don't need to get anything else involved and have there be any problems. But later. you just, but you just made the most important point, which is you have enough self-awareness to not step in and try and to then maybe ruin your relationship. And I think that's the problem is why are you doing it? And if you're doing it yeah. because you're pressured by your partner and it doesn't feel good to you, uh, that's not going to go well. And yeah. the people that pull it off are the people that actually want it. We're both partners, both desire it. Great. But I say to couples a thousand things. If your relationship matters to you, you don't just snowplow right in. There's a couple ground rules. First is why are we doing this? Does everyone want to do this? Things like, if I'm not feeling comfortable as it's happening, are we both on the same page that it stops? Or is the expectation that I'll just exit the room and you'll continue? You also mm -hmm. have to talk about it afterwards. Did that work for us? Is that something we'd want to do again? Or is that not something we want to do again? Like, it requires a lot of communication, but you nailed it. Have self-awareness. Do it because you want to. And if you don't, say no. It will not go well for you. Right. Okay. Now I want to get to a question that I think probably everyone's like, shut up, Rachel, and just ask him. How can we have better sex? And I love that the answer is a, is a more simple one. The answer isn't bigger, louder, faster, harder, which is what we think in our culture has to be the solution to everything. Mm -hmm. So the solution is almost a little boring. The solution is a thousand things. Number one, get out of your patterns and habits. Because as you pointed out earlier, we tend to do it the same way. It starts the same way. It ends the same way. It's at the same time of day. That sounds boring to me, whatever it is we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't eat the same meal every day. We don't watch the same TV show. I don't go to the gym and do the same exercises. That's right. boring. Yet, we do it with sex and we wonder why it stinks. Also, bring your authentic self. Your monogamous partner, if we're talking about monogamy, is the person who should know you sexually. Mm -hmm. If they don't know all the things that turn you on, you're doing it wrong. That's the person you're supposed to bring that part to. So all the things you're fantasizing about, all the porn maybe you're watching, that's a communication of a more authentic part of your sexuality. Are you trying to bring that to your partner somehow and engage in that? And for some couples, maybe they're not going to do all those things. Okay. But there's still some things we can learn from that. And one of the tools I'll give couples is it's called the yes, no, maybe, where only for healthy, secure, confident couples, because it can go really wrong. They'll share all the things that they fantasize about and turn them on. And the partner will say, yes, that sounds good to me. No, it doesn't. Or maybe if we make some changes. And that's an intervention on intimacy building and possibly changing sex. Right. Well, I think that's a really interesting answer because most people would think, oh, you know, the woman has to want it in the ass to make it really good sex or yeah. whatever. So it's a yeah. more simple answer, as you said. I want to ask specifically um, about you know, well, clearly there are people you have sex with and you know that they just suck and it's terrible. And then there are people that surprise you and they're amazing. And then sometimes with yourself, like I know I'll just share, um, people have said, Oh, I assume you're really good at Ben. And I'm, I think about it. I'm like, I gotta be honest with you. There are people that will tell you that I'm amazing. 
there are people that will tell you that I'm like a starfish and I just lay there because I'm so <laughs> not into them and I just want it to be over and it's yeah, yeah. terrible, but like I'm in a relationship with them or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So I think, I guess how you feel about yourself in relation to them, but also there are some tips and tricks of people who are good in bed with physical, tangible things that can kind of bring you out. And sometimes people don't know what that is because they haven't had a lot of experience, right? I think experience which is why I said, which is why I said, don't don't get married at at twenty two to your high school or college sweetheart, yeah. right? Like, of course, if you meet an amazing person, give it a shot. But don't spend your twenties trying to find your soulmate and get married. Yeah. Go experience a lot of things. Travel. Try different kinds of food. Date. Have sex. Figure out who you are. Learn some things. We we believe that there are a lot of life experiences to be had and developmental milestones. But when I mention there are also sexual relational ones, we're like too far, too far, and it's like why? Because this is what can happen, right? right. So don't don't try to lock yourself down too quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. But but go go further to your to the question. What was the question of that? Because I agree with you. We can be better with some people, worse with other people. And there are some people that just are really great at what they do. My my answer also within that tends to be kind of a little bit of a surprise switch, which is I think the the people I know that are probably really bad at sex are the ones that say something like, "I know what all women want." Damn, that's a problem because you don't because everyone's different. And if you right. enter sex thinking, I know what they all want, you're not actually being in the moment with that person. Mm. And good sexual partners know that everyone I'm with, I'm a virgin again. I have to figure out what we like. I have to figure out who they are. I have to figure right. out what parts of their body they like being engaged. Some people want lights on, eye contact. Some people want lights off. Some people do want anal. Some people don't. Some people want it fast. Some people want it slower. Some people want more connection. Approach every sex partner anew. And say to them, we have to figure out who we are. It's interesting that you're saying that because we were you were talking before about how some couples get into um, the same routine, but I think there are people that get into the same routine with their you know what they do. So they'll they'll go to every woman using yeah. these same moves, thinking they're really good at going down, and then they do this, and then they do that, and it can backfire when it you know because you're not really connecting with that person. What I wanted to ask you though is, you know, I think that it's sort of known that first time sex can really suck. And is it because you're stuck in your head? Like, what do they like? You know, you don't really know this person that well. What is it that they like? How do I look right now? How does, you know, what do I smell? Like whatever people are dealing with, right? And they don't know the person. So how, do you think it's okay to be in your head? Do you think people should get out of their head and just try to feel good? Should they be impressing the other person and trying to make them feel good? Like where should they be in their mind? Yeah, we're we're a culture of um, reflected back self-worth and self-esteem. So we enter sex the same way we often enter dating. Um, my goal is for them to like me. And that's the worst way, as I said earlier, to enter dating, right? So mm-hmm. a parallel example, as I said, enter dating, wearing the things you like to wear, going to the kind of restaurants you go to as your full authentic self, hoping they do that as well so we can really see if we're compatible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a perfect first date is realizing we aren't because we were both honest. Do the same thing with sex. If you approach sex thinking, I'm going to mind read and try to guess what this person wants, what they like, you're already doing it wrong. You should approach sex thinking, and this is where people get shocked because it's a flip on what they'd expect. Approach sex thinking, what turns me on imagining doing to that person? And be more self-guided. 
while also acknowledging that there's another person on the receiving end, and you are assessing if they're enjoying it, if they feel safe, if they feel comfortable, checking in with them. That is erotic, saying, does that feel good to you? Is that hot? Is that turning you on, right? But don't approach it thinking, I'm here to make them happy. Mm. Don't approach it thinking, my self-worth is tied to this. Approach it thinking, we're just here to have fun, and that's going to best come from me thinking about my pleasure. Right. Okay, let's talk about sexuality for a second. You've been very open with the fact that you are sex fluid. Is that what you call it, by the way? Yeah, I you know, labels, yeah, labels get wonky and clunky. I've had sex with all genders. I right. sexually fluid, open, yeah. Now, isn't that meaning doesn't that mean bisexual? Doesn't that mean pansexual? I'm confused by just explain. Yeah. So the labels, again, they get really clunky. They're, they're important for some people because it makes them feel real and they can find community. But essentially, traditionally speaking, bisexual means I like men and women. Pansexual really came about to recognize that there are people that are like gender non-binary and gender fluid. And there's people that aren't quite male or female in their expression. And so pan is to say, I like them too. Mm-hmm. Right. So the only reason I ask you, because I could care less what you, you know, choose, who you choose to be with, but I, I want to know because you've been with both sexes. And so I want to know specifically, is there something that, you know, when you are with a man that you would do differently than when you're with a woman, what do you think? So like, I'm a woman, I like to be with a man. I'm not into women. Why don't you tell women first? if there's some tips or tricks of what you can do with your man that men really like, and then the opposite to say what you think women. I've never been asked that question like that. That's an interesting question. (laughs) Before I answer, just always want to point out that everyone's going to be different, right? Mm. So don't ever enter it thinking there's this one thing that all women like because a very diverse crowd. And we're talking about women, right? There's a wealth of different individuals. Um, and I'm a big fan of, like I said, us approaching it from what's going to turn us on, not as a self-centered act, but as a way to be guided by pleasure and not being guided by performance, because mm-hmm. that never feels good to the partner. They feel like they're having sex done to them, not with them, right. while always checking in on them, right? But having said that, men are socialized to tend to be a little more transactional, and men tend to be a little more obsessed with sex and penetration and orgasm, where women tend to be more experiential and emotional, which is why I have a lot of my heterosexual men that are patients of mine watching feminist porn, porn that is created by and centered around women's pleasure, which includes more foreplay, more aftercare, more affection as a way for them to have a wider breadth of skills, but also to be able to be more intimate because standard Mm -hmm. heterosexual porn is centered around a man's pleasure. Get it in, get it done. And as long as I orgasmed, we're good. Where feminist-based porn is, again, more affectionate, post-aftercare, but also is centered on the relational connection. And this hurts my heart to have to say, it also involves the woman's orgasm mattering because we know from research that when women masturbate, they orgasm 75 to 90% of the time. When women have sex with another woman, it's about that as well. But guess, ready for this zinger? When women have sex with men, it drops down to about 14% or less of the time they orgasm. Is that because <laughs> men don't really know what they're doing? And don't care. Right. <laughs> both. Wow. It's both. And so we need to put a little more emphasis on the fact that, yo, buddy, you're not the only one in the bed. 
and right. everyone, their pleasure matters. So right. yeah, you got to learn how to hang in there and stick around and prioritize someone else's pleasure too. Right. Um, let's go back to talking about couples therapy for one second. Is there one sure. thing that you look for in a couple that you are saying, yeah, you know what, we can make this, or you guys can make this work um, because I see X, Y, Z in you guys, and we can get you to a new place of where you can find some intimacy again. Or can you look at a couple and, and say, oh God, you'd be better off, you know, in different relationships, g- going your separate ways. Like what is your, what are you looking for? Yeah, thank you for that question, because that's a brilliant question. It's a smart question. It's probably one of the most important questions. And I, I don't want couples to panic in my answer, but here's the answer. We have really robust research that helps us understand what are the qualities that exist for couples that have long-term sustainability, longevity, and happiness. Mm-hmm. And there's pretty much one thing that they have. <clears throat> couples that are going to make it at their core, even while fighting and going through a tough time, they still have what we call friendship. They still mm-hmm. like each other. The couples that won't make it and are destined with almost an 85 plus percent accuracy rate of research are the ones that don't like each other, don't have friendship. And the word we use is contempt. If a couple enters my office and they have contempt for each other, and you can see that where they do not like each other, we're probably not going to get any work done and they should probably separate. That is such a good point. I mean, there, there's a different way that I interact with someone, even if I know the relationship is ending, if I have some respect for them, if I really, you know, like them and don't, and I'm very cautious about hurting them really. I mean, you know, and then there are people that you don't give a shit what you say to them because you're just like, you disgust me. You're annoying everything about you. I'm repulsed by, but when you have this little, little thread left of respect for the person, I think it does change things. And something you made me think of too, like what's really important to me is I really crave a witness to my life. To me, that's super important. I want someone who knows me. And when we get to a stage way later in our relationship where things might be going wrong, I believe that the thing that will hold us together is that we have this, you know, these bonds rooted in experience together and things we've been through together. And I'm always hoping that that will bring us back to a place of intimacy. Now, I don't have anyone in my life that I know this personally from, but I'm always hoping I'll find that. That is it. That Thank you for that exact soundbite. That is what relationality should be about. I want a companion on my journey. I want someone to witness my life. I want someone to be next to me through it. But we don't date from that perspective. We date usually from our ego, which is he needs to be a certain height. He needs to have a certain structure in his life. And I say to clients, that's your ego. You don't need him to be a certain height, actually. His height has nothing to do with what kind of witness or partner he'll be in your life. His height has nothing to do with how he'll be with you if you lose a loved one and the support he'll offer. His height has nothing to do with what he'll be like as a partner through tough times in your life, financially, health, and otherwise. You want a witness. Focus on that. Is this person someone who makes my life better? Is this someone who can do that? But we don't look at it in those ways. We look at it from our ego generally. But what about people that are getting into fights with their partner because they are no longer motivated, because they don't make a good enough salary, whatever it is, because those things can really affect sex. They can really affect a relationship. Um, how do you separate it? Or or do you think they're really intertwined? I think they're intertwined. It's it's a really difficult balance of these two pieces. We don't we don't enter someone's life as their partner because we want them to nitpick us and tell us what's wrong with us and ask us to change. No one says that's why I'm going online today, right? Um, and yet, I want people to be able to make requests 
on their partner. And so let me answer that by making two therapy points and tips. Number one, make requests, not criticism, right? The way you approach that topic matters because you have to remember the goal is the relationship, not the change you're seeking first and foremost. Always focus on how is this theme or topic or argument impacting our relationship. So make a request. Hey, honey, it would mean a lot to me if you could please start taking the trash out. That's going to do more relationally and motivationally than to say you're a jerk and a slob and you never take the trash out. That is toxic and that motivates nobody, right? Right. So that's the first point. The second point is, and this is very clunky and confusing sometimes, your job as a partner is to accept your partner as they are. So when you're dating, you're assessing, is this what I want? It's, it's, It's what do they call it in furniture? It's as is. Right. No changes are coming. This is as is. It's a floor model. You're getting right. that as that. So if that's not the color fabric. Damages and all. Thank you. Damages and all. Then please don't purchase that couch, right? right? So while I said that, that your job is to what we call accept and allow, not control, not judge, you still are allowed to make requests. And a good partner will be noting those requests. So when I'm in a relationship with someone that I love, like I am now, I expect them to accept me as I am. However, because I'm a good partner and I know that everything I'm doing and how I am impacts them and their life and their mental health, any request they make, I'm jotting it down. I want to give them that. I love them. So it's both. Accept your partner as they are. Problem, you know, whatever you said, stains and, and defects and all, but still make requests lovingly. And as a good partner, hear those requests and write them down and freaking work up. Right. I love that. Okay. We talked before about having experience in sex. What about people that have been with a longtime partner and they don't feel as experienced in sex and they want to learn about how to have better sex? Where would you suggest they go look at porn? Would you suggest they read a book? Like how, how do they get better if they're only working with one person? Yeah. I mean, the first answer is it's going to be tough, right? Because you only have access to this one partner and that's a decision you made and we have to work within the limits of that. There's a lot we can do. Number one, I would say watch some porn, but I'm very thoughtful about the kind of porn that I support my patients in watching. And I have them watch, as I said before, feminist porn. I don't want the, I don't want the watching the standard porn, which is body shape sizes, activities that aren't standard for us. I want them to watch porn that has bodies that looks like theirs. I want women and men to hear that takeaway. Our sexual and body esteem is impacted by everything we are surrounding ourselves with. Mm -hmm. Social media, the movies, conversations our friends are having. So watch porn that looks like you. And watch porn that that is feminist, where there is affection. There is aftercare. There is concern for everyone's orgasm. It's slower. It's more relational. Watch that. And also read books like mine. I wrote... Sex Outside the Lines and Rebel Love as a quick, easy way for people to get a few tidbits as to how to be a better person because having better sex is essentially a relational thing and it is about being a better person. But without getting into that, um, yes, there are great resources in books and healthy porn. And that's all you're really going to have access to because you're monogamous and this is your long-term partner. Right. Um, Do you think that relationships should be easy if you're with the right person? No. No, I'm worried about couples that never fight. I'm worried about couples that have no conflict. Healthy relationships aren't about the absence of conflict. Mm. It's about the way you manage that conflict. Healthy couples have a lot of it. They just are very loving and soft about it. They repair quickly. They manage it better. If a couple never fights, I'm wondering who's people-pleasing, who's selling themselves out. Why is it so fragile that you can't have any criticisms or conflict? Mm -hmm. Right. And so 
I, I had I had an amazing therapy session many years ago where clients said, "Oh my God, Dr. Chris, I mean, you, you're you're an educator, you travel the world lecturing, you have books, you must be the the perfect partner." And I said, "Well, no, I'm a human first, but I said I want for you what I hold myself accountable to. I deal with things better, I catch them sooner, and I repair far superior. That's all I expect of myself. So allow conflict. It's healthy. You're two separate people. Just be loving." in the way you discuss it and work through it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that you had a show before, Love Line, right? Um, where yeah. you kind of took the next step after Dr. Drew and yes. took your experience and really were helping people who were writing in, calling in, whatever it was. Many years ago, I was a guest host on Love Line with Dr. Drew, and it was a very interesting um, experience for me. So I don't know if you know this about me. I was on... Um, celebrity rehab with Dr. Drew. And my re my uh, addiction was love addiction because okay. they kind of didn't have one for me and I'm not a drug user. So, um, and I thought that was really dumb. And I was like, this is stupid. I'm not going to go on there while somebody is withdrawing from like heroin addiction and say, yeah. oh, I'm here for love addiction. It's killing me. But what I did find is that I really, you know, have some issues related to how I interact in my relationships. And I do mistake, or I did mistake, you know, intensity for love. I had a bad picker. I would pick the wrong people for whatever reason. I placed my value on whether or not some, I was loved or someone loved me by who the person was. They had to be powerful. Everyone have to, had to want them. And if they want me, then I must be yeah. worthy. Right. And so I did get a lot out of being there. Um, but you know, I feel now I'm losing my train of thought because I just went down a whole path, <laughs> but I know you don't believe that love addiction is, is like a real thing, but I, you know, the thing with love line, oh, okay. That's what I was saying. Love line was very interesting because it was more about sex issues. Right. So yeah, yeah. I remember a guy called in and said, um, he was addicted to having sex with the wall. He had made a hole in the wall and put peanut butter on the side and was having Classic sex with love line. That, yeah, and he couldn't get intimate with his girlfriend because she wasn't slathered in peanut butter and didn't feel like a wall and didn't talk back or whatever. And, you know, Drew's giving his clinical version of why he had trauma in his past. And meanwhile, I'm like, stop. Doesn't the wall hurt? How are you? I'm trying to figure out how this <laughs> You're getting to the nuts and bolts of it. How do you even do that? Yeah. yeah, it was just crazy for me. I couldn't understand any of it. But did you have an enjoyable experience being on that show? <laughs> that's where that that's the question and all of that. I love that that's the question. How did you how did, um I I was really complimented that that was an opportunity I got to have, right? Because uh before what the, the true story is, uh, when Dr. Drew uh, stopped doing Love Line, me and Amber Rose were doing it as a podcast. And then a radio station, K-Rock, um, <clears throat> asked me to do it as a radio show. And I loved it. And I was so complimented because kind of like what you're doing with your show, it's just great to have an opportunity to um, have an impact and to have a legacy of uh, changing people, helping information get out there. I loved it. It was awesome. I brought a different spin for sure. I'm far more sex positive. I look at mm. things very differently, but that's natural, right? I, I, I'm in a different generation and I have a different background than his. I loved it. And my goal with people like him was to try to normalize all the diverse creative ways that we are sexual. And my, I would have said to him, you're not addicted. It's just that turns you on a lot. And so that's what you're most drawn to. We are all most drawn towards that, which is most arousing to us. 
Yeah. And what I noticed from being on that and also from going to love addiction meetings, which were, you know, immersed in sex addiction meetings, I found that that came with a lot of shame and a a lot of, you know, people would associate that with trauma and things they went through in their past. Whereas it sounds like with you, you, you don't put shame on that. You're like, okay, well, that's cool. If that's what you like to do, but maybe let's like figure out how to translate that into a relationship with a woman or a man or whatever. hundred percent. Because shame is a trauma. And shame yeah. is not a healing, motivating thing. So I don't shame anyone because I know that that's walking them backwards and maybe traumatizing them. And my job yeah. is to remove trauma. So I'm not going to create trauma. And love addiction and sex addiction, I think, miss the mark because of what you just said. They create shame. They can create sexual anorexia. And they're really not looking at the core issue, which is um, how can you translate some of that to sex with a partner? How can you find ways to have sex with a partner? How can you normalize that we like creative, diverse things? We can eroticize anything. Right. Yeah. We can turn out by anything and everything. That doesn't mean that something traumatic happened. And that's yeah. a very sex negative idea that if you're turned on by something creative or diverse, it must be a trauma. No, it's not. Um, positive things can come from a trauma. Anything we do or we like is a result of every experience we've had. You yeah. can never take one thing and link it back to one event. Everything that's happened since that trauma has impacted that. So my work is about normalizing and healing in a different way. Right. Chris, what would you say is the most misunderstood thing about sex and sexuality? Uh, That diversity and creative sexuality is inherently a problem. Okay. Um, All right. So where can people find you? Tell us about your books one more time, your podcast, anything you're doing so people can reach out to you. I'm sure people have more questions and would love to um, get your ear. Yeah. So my books are Sex Outside the Lines and Rebel Love. And my Instagram is at Dr. Donahue. And those are probably the best resources to find my work. Okay. And do you read your DMs if people are I do. I do. I try to engage as best as possible. Awesome. All right. So anyone listening, definitely um, hit him on DM if you have some more questions or um, things you want to know about or have a conversation with him. Um, Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time. It's been such a pleasure um, and very knowledgeable stuff that you have. um, And I will go forward in the world with your information and hopefully be a better partner to someone. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.